If you're enjoying the show so far, please consider helping by supporting our show. Although never expected, any support for our show enables us to keep bringing the audiobook club to your ears. Hello and welcome to the Audiobook Club. This week we're so lucky to be joined by playwright and director Paul Birch. Paul, thank you so much for joining me on the show. How are you today? I think I'm all right. I never quite know how to answer that question these days, but uh, I think I'm okay. Well, that's as good as anyone could ask. (laughs) So as is tradition on the show, would you be able to tell us a little bit about your background and how you found theatre and writing? Sure. Um, So uh, like most people, I guess, I kind of fell into plays at school and really loved um, not only being in plays, but my had we had a brilliant drama teacher called Stephen Ricks um, and he did this thing where he made us set up our own touring theatre company, uh, making plays that we wanted to make. Uh, so a couple of us um, wrote plays and toured them to other schools and they were dreadful. Um, <laughs> but it was brilliant to be given that agency. So I've always, I didn't, uh, I, I later trained as an actor, mm. but at the back of my head, I was always a, writer maker director actor as well so um that's where it all began um and then when i trained as an actor i trained at a place called breton hall where people like the um league of extraordinary gentlemen uh you know kind of uh league of sorry league of gentlemen getting my sean connery bad film alan moore comic (laughs) mixed up with um the comic series no the league of gentlemen the you know brilliant mark gattis and so on yeah uh, and the inside number nine phenomenal um, writer makers went um, and I was there after them. But uh, I think it was that kind of place where you yeah. you weren't just cast uh, in scripts, but you were making your own work as well. So I then went and began to kind of enjoy that side of it, began to make write um, outside largely in theatre, uh, but also had this deep, deep love of audio and um like uh radio four was always on um in my working class household i should say it sounds very middle class but radio four and for international listeners that's kind of like npr for Mm. american listeners um uh that that was always on in the house and they had drama slots and i remember being in my grand's house and the Brian Sibley audio dramatization of Lord of the Rings, which is like 16 hours long, yeah. was on. And um, I sort of loved suddenly that in the corner of the house, this magical world was unfolding and um, that I was a co-creator in it, that my imagination kind of would respond to the audio. So yeah. um, when I was training as an actor, we had an opportunity to uh, do a radio drama elective and um so I, I i did that twice in my second and sorry my first and my second year where we made radio dramas essentially yeah um, so it yeah audio's kind of is my favorite medium uh, more than tv more than film more than theater um although i largely work uh, for the stage um, yeah. So that's my very long. <laughs> <laughs> no, it is perfect. Yeah. That's that's fantastic. Do you find it as, as a writer, do you find working in audio quite freeing? Because obviously when you're writing for stage and or for other mediums, you know, like screen and such, there's obviously you have to think about budget. You have to think about what you're putting on. You know, you have to watch the cost. Whereas in audio, you can set a world that, you know, with it just being audio based, you don't have to worry about, um, you know, what you're seeing. Do you find that freeing as a writer? Oh, a hundred percent. I mean, I mean, and it's not just that you can do things that maybe you don't have the budget for, say, on on the stage or Mm. even in film. Mm. Not that I've written for film, but, you know, if you decide to have an army, you know, obviously that costs more. But there there are things you could always do pre-CGI in audio. You could set a scene in a cow's stomach. You know, you (laughs) you can... um, you know, you can have people be uh, invisible. You can make worlds explode. You, I mean, yeah. I, I just, I really, I really love that, that, that there are no limits. Um, and I love the 
oh my gosh, do I love the ingenious ways in which audio producers uh, and um, sound designers can <laughs> do incredible things. Yeah. Um, and I, you know, like I, I recently, um, I watched the Sandman on Netflix, the Neil yeah. Gaiman uh, thing, which I really enjoyed. I thought it was terrific, but I much prefer Dirk Mags's um the oh, there's three now isn't there? i haven't listened to the third part but i i think yeah. dirk mag's uh work uh, and and his team yeah it's just incredible and and that that is um yeah what a joyous joyous yeah. kind of uh medium where all these different artists can co-create and create incredible mm -hmm uh things yeah yeah absolutely i think as a, as an audience you know as a listener as an audience member what you get from audio as you said at the start with it's just your imagination you feel like you're a co-creator you feel like you're a part of it and i think with like you know especially if you're listening with headphones or something it can be so intimate can't it as, a, as an audience much more than just watching something although obviously watching something's great as well but it's just that more sort of personal experience i guess yeah i and i think I think, you know, that famously, it's the most easy to turn off, mm. you know, it's, it's interesting because my, my grand hated the Lord of the Rings, <laughs> oh, lots of dwarves, <laughs> goblins, what, what a load of rubbish. Um, yeah. and, and wanted the archers to come on, <laughs> uh, you know, um, but she didn't turn it off. But, but I think it is one of those things where a kind of beige audio drama, um, I remember there was this, just this time when there was a lot of radio four dramas that i personally found quite beige and yeah you know i just yeah i don't need another 19th century diary really yeah. thanks yeah. bye yeah. um you know where people were being quite unambitious i suppose mm. or quite dull and narrow in 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 some of those dramas that particularly i think were on radio four for a bit and i, and I do think mm. that's that's changed but i think because you can turn the dramas off so easily yeah. um that's one danger but mm. oh my goodness if you if you create something that's fantastic it stays with you so i remember yeah. um louis de bernier wrote up uh, his version of undermilk wood um mm. called sunday morning at the center of the world and it was done as a radio four drama with roy marsden i think was the narrator um and it's it's basically an urban version of Under Milk Woods set in Earlsfield in London, where where he lived. Um, and it just, you know, Dylan Thomas calls Under Milk Wood a play for voices, and 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 this is another play for voices. And these extraordinary voices and characters leapt out of my earphones into my head, and then would not leave me alone. Yeah. Um, and I and I can still hear it. I can still hear it in my head, and it's twenty years later and it's yeah. i've got the script but those you know the voices of the dead in that death wish debbie um you know they're all in yeah. in my head now they weren't they and and i just think it's it's beyond immersive i would say yeah. when it's when it's done right and well and it connects with an audience member it's it's um it's not only immersive in the moment but it haunts you in a brilliant way yeah, no, I couldn't agree more. I couldn't agree more. I have many experiences uh, just like that where something stays with you. Um, strangely enough, I don't know if it is strange or not, but Radio 4 comedy, uh, like, you know, the comedy dramas that they they put on, they always stay with me. I always, it's my favourite <laughs> way to uh, unwind. Now, um, Innovating, uh, a project created, I believe, by Kate Valentine and written by yourself um, about York's coaching ins. Could you, could you tell us a little more about this project and your experience writing it? Oh, thanks. Yeah. And and that's all available for free. You can, there's an innovating yeah. website. Um, I maybe could put a link in the show notes. Absolutely. Um, yeah. Where you can just hear them. Yeah. So um, Kate Valentine, the director and audio producer, just, um, she was recommended uh, me as a writer mm. um, and she was wanting to, uh, I live in York and yeah. um, York's got a, you know, brilliant, multi-layered history yeah um but uh it's also on the great north road which is this famous um road from london through to edinburgh um yeah. which was the main artery of um britain um in the regency period and and well a bit longer than that in fact mm -hmm. um and she had this idea that um we would 
create uh, in the inns of York that still exist those those staging posts that still exist in York that we would um, uh, create an audio drama that people could go into the pub and have a pint and listen to the audio drama in in the pub that was the original idea or even um, walk the route with headphones um, and then using geolocation stuff it would trigger um, uh, moments from the scene and that we would do this with a one of the brilliant parts of the project is we would team up with local historians um, and local community members and community theatre makers and we would devise it and then I would script it um, and that's what we did yeah. and um, uh, spoiler a little bit of spoiler but still listen to it um, body snatching was a big deal in York <laughs> and and um, and uh, there is uh, uh, an element of body snatching in the in these uh, in the uh coaching ins and and trafficking dead bodies via the coaches yeah. so um we we th i thought that's too good to miss of all the research that came out i thought i'd love to to write that and um so we devised it and uh, with the help of local historians who who then really helped me with details getting the details right and and and, and i had this wonderful resource where i could say oh um uh for example uh you know how many horses did this in stable in you know 1830 or and then they would go and then they would either find out or say we think it's probably this number so i had this amazing i love working with historians on projects and and getting their wisdom because they often have details that just can absolutely make a story come to life so um we we created this but we discovered that it wasn't easy to have that walk around tour experience because a people could get run over the <laughs> 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 roads um and and it's also about how you listen um so there's a difference between walking around and listening and what the drama might need to be to sustain that um than sitting down and listening mm -hmm. um so and then we found that there's these really evocative ends with you know it's the, the the wood is the same and the furniture you know like mm. all ancient fireplaces and mm. you know it's a really brilliant place but they do play simply red all the time <laughs> so <laughs> you can't you can't you can't even with headphones yeah, yeah. you don't have a blank canvas in which to listen and so what we ended up doing was um uh, just creating a drama that wherever you are, you can listen. So you can still go to those places and we've beer mats with a QR code, which takes you to the audio drama. Um, so you can, by all means, sit in a pub and have a drink, but you can just as easily listen um, wherever you are and be taken into that world. Yeah, yeah. And her and Matteo Falco, the sound designer, um, uh, you know, and, and the team have created, I think, very immersive uh, uh, worlds, but it was done. The rec the recording was done very quickly. Uh, uh, you know, we uh, we um, we fashioned, we built a radio studio in our in the city centre library, in the, nice, in the, nice. and and um, while people were going in to get their books, and we recorded the whole drama over the course of um, a day. You know, after yeah. we'd rehearsed it, and 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 other bits were recorded prior some of the monologues were recorded prior in it in another studio um but the the community cast coming together in the library and recording and it was a, just a brilliant final day of recording um uh, and i'm in it also uh wheeling out some voices but i had i was full of hay fever so, <laughs> so my nose was blocked so i was thinking this is the worst timing to do voices when i can't yeah, my nasal yeah. passages were full of pollen um so apologies for that i think the acting <laughs> hopefully is still okay but... yeah that's, that's such, a, such fantastic, a fantastic and fascinating idea and i love the idea of of um if you could listen to it like you know in a in a pub in york getting that sort of surroundings i think that's fantastic i love york i'm from um i'm from ghoul so just oh. you know just outside um but i go to york um very often and things you know to the theater royal and such um but yeah just that just that surrounding so full of history and so rich um tremendous now you also perform and teach improvisation um this is a medium that that, that truly fascinates me 
um, after, after seeing my, my first improv show down south um, early this summer, I became sort of obsessed with it. Right. And I, th- I think it can be such a true pleasure um, for an audience. How how did you come at, you know, how did you get started in improvisation? Well, that that was also my school. And I went to a terrible school, like it was a, special measures and like, oh, yeah. it was a really bad school, but there were some brilliant teachers. And, and um uh, this is uh, the 1980s and Whose Line Is It Anyway was on the British version, which yeah. interestingly started on radio. Um, it started on radio before it was on TV. And um, so Tony Slattery and and um, uh, originally it was people like Stephen Fry and, and Josie Lawrence. And then later um, we imported uh, brilliant Americans and Canadians like Greg Proops and... Um, Mike McShane and Ryan Stiles and Colin Mockery and they and so I grew up with that so we made our own in school yeah um and I did a little bit um when I trained and then just did did stuff every so often a very whose line is it anyway type way but I me and some other improvisers were just we needed to work our craft and just before the pandemic we the mothership for us of improvisation is Chicago, is IO and Second City. Yeah. And so we um, arranged to go and train there for a little bit, but then the wow. pandemic hit, so we couldn't. But we ended training online, one of the virtues of online. And it honestly, I think kept me sane through the pandemic was doing that. And through that, we uh, we now have a Chicago teacher, Craig Euler, who, who teaches us online and um, and then he said to me, you should train at the Second City, which is where, yeah. you know, Tina Fey and Amy Poehler and Bob Odenkirk and back in the day, uh, Mike Myers and yeah. uh, Eugene Levy and Catherine O'Hara, you know, all trained. So um, I auditioned and got in and, and trained there. And, and now we are um, doing lots of uh, what they call long form. Um, so whose line is it anyway, a short form um uh, comedic improvisation which is quite game based you know you yeah. play the alphabet game or you play this game and long form is much more about scenes and relationships and storytelling and can be funny doesn't have yeah. to be so we are so one of the things we did recently in terms of getting back to um, books and audio books was we took the structure of Kate Atkinson's behind the scenes at the museum which was the book that launched um, was our big city read so the City Centre Library book bought um, hundreds of copies of that book and anyone in the city could go and have that book for free, their own copy. And in the book, um, objects trigger memories and stories. So we invited a guest monologist who wasn't a performer to talk about the stories, objects from his life that had meaning to him. And then we used those stories, which we hadn't heard to improvise scenes based on those stories. And uh, yeah, so we're doing lots of improv experiments, some of which are joyful and fun and some yeah. of which are a bit more serious and we're just, yeah. yeah. But I, I think it's improvisation, the training at Second City and IO and another an incredible um, place to train um, taught me what what makes a good scene. Um, so one of the things that you learn is about platforming the scene. So the, what's sometimes called the who, what, where, and I'm so used to writing and have been so much subtext, 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 mm. but in improvisation, if you're too subtexty, the other person has no idea what you're on about. <laughs> yeah. um, uh, so it's about elegant ways of communicating the platform, the basis of the scene so that the other improviser can, um, can respond and build on that scene. And I think my writing's got much better. And another, I remember another teacher I had, a brilliant Chicago teacher, but he's now in LA, Tim Paul. And he he said, when you're improvising, give your characters an objective that they can actually meet in the scene. So for example, if a husband and wife are struggling in their marriage, Hmm. they can't solve their marriage in the scene. But you could go, okay, if I can, if I, if the husband just wants his wife to kiss him for the, you know, because it's, they've not, that's the goal of the scene. So it is about them saving their marriage. But in terms of the, the scene, you've got a very simple 
achievable goal within a scene and that gives um too often scenes a kind of placeholders for action it's all about what they're going to do later on or it's all about the past it's not about what is happening between the two characters now so um you can get quite passive scenes and you see it all the time in drama it's a scene which is not about the two people but about the people that the two people are talking about who aren't in the scene you go well i'd rather see the scene with the person that they're talking about so it's a, a improvisation is really one of the things it's done is made me a better storyteller yeah. and writer. Yeah, wow. That's it's so much. This is why I love like I did just so much that you don't think about as an audience member that's going on. And it's yeah, it's truly fascinating. Before you're about to perform an improv show, is there like a specific process to get you warmed up? Like how do you get yourself into the zone in order to explore and create fresh ideas like on the spot? The natural thing, and, it, and it, improvisation, I think, is particularly hard for writers because writers foresee story. Yeah. And so I can be a bad improviser because I can go in the scene and go, oh, okay, this is where this scene has got to go. And then I'm essentially driving my scene partner to catch up with the story that I've got in my head. Yeah. And, and improvisation cannot work like that. Only bad improvisation works like that. I have mm-hmm. to surrender um what where i want the story to go and listen to and then we build the scene line by line so this line leads to this line and neither of us know where it's going but we're just so so listening is really the heart of it before anything else it's it's not about what i how do i get the ideas from my head out it's it's listening and then just responding to that that idea so um we do lots of different warm-ups but one might be we might um, do a scene in which uh, I use the dialogue of the previous line in my next line. So Mm. if I said, oh, it's raining tortoises outside, the next line would be the tortoises raining outside are a bugger because you keep tripping over them, tripping over them. And it's not that that's how you improvise, but what it does is it, it, it means that you're not improvising from your own ideas. You are, you are always seeking to build off the previous the previous line so there's lots of drills um like that that help um language is really important so some improvisers we use the word and this is sex life skills really mm. you know some some people we use the word i a lot i think this well i think you should do that i i i yeah. and some people will use the word you mm. you always you do this you do and and what that does is if i use i a lot then I am focused on my ideas. If I use you a lot, then I'm entirely focused on the other person. And what you want is a balance. So yeah. just by using the words I and you um, almost equally, mm. when you create, when you're coming up with lines, change the dynamic of the scene and, and make it more equitable in terms of what yeah. what comes out. Um, uh yeah, so we'll we'll do drills. Those are kind of specific drills to just help help either listening, being aware. If we're doing a short form show, we will do all the games just so that we're clear on. Oh, this is how we play the alphabet game, or this is how we play committee. Um, even though we won't use obviously use any of that material. Hmm. Um, uh, yeah, just to get us into the space and and post pandemic because we were doing so much online you know improvisations were kind of sat or they were stood up and and there wasn't much movement so just getting back into the space but there's a beautiful exercise um which i i didn't learn at second city or io but was sort of oral tradition which i i love and i'd recommend any makers of drama writers to play it and what you do is you improvise a scene but the person that has the next line cannot speak straight away what they have to do is they have to surf the silence between the line but the silence has to be filled with something um uh often it's the emotion of the previous line so if the if there's tension it's easy right you have a that you have that silence which is incredibly tense and stressed but it could be joyful it could be you know baking a cake together and the joy of oh this cake is delicious and instead of just talking about the cake is delicious, you take a moment in the silence to fill that silence with joy. 
and you just play that a lot and it it releases physicality you use fewer words it has it has more emotion and I, and i do think in all drama but obviously in audio drama silence speaks louder than words yeah. and how silence is used and and you can build that into scripts and and directors and actors can build it into scripts where there aren't and not you know audiobook narrators obviously choose yeah. where those silences go but i think there used to be this phrase in scripts which they've got rid of um i've noticed <laughs> um <laughs> called the pregnant pause um uh which is a kind of you know yeah not a hugely helpful term except that i like the idea of silence being full of something yeah tension hate love joy um bewilderment yeah a, you know silence isn't just a gap between you know between the actual drama it is the drama yeah. um and i think as i grow and develop as a writer and storyteller using silence more and more and in varied ways because obviously mm. the playwright harold pinter is famous for the pinter pause mm. um and using pauses in his work but largely they're tension based but i think there's so many other ways in which silence can be used um to speak yeah i think you're absolutely right it's so yeah as an audience member and it, it does speak louder than uh than words and you, uh, yeah, uh, yeah absolutely right Another project of yours that I'm fascinated with and would love to know more about is Getting Better, uh, the fight for the NHS with performers like Rod Gilbert, Neve McIntosh, Mark Gattis, Patterson Joseph, to name but a few. Um, I'd love to know how you became involved in that project and, and how your process changes when working with other writers. Yeah, so, I mean, that was a huge epic project and it's a really, not only is it brilliant, but it's important um, um, and again, for international listeners, the NHS is our health service and, um, we've, uh, the birth of it, um, really was after the second world war and, um, uh, a labor politician, a left-wing politician called an iron Bevan, um, uh, and others pushed for, um, the creation of a health service that provided free health care. And we've enjoyed that for many, many years. And, um, in, you know, and in the pandemic, you know, every Thursday night we'd come out and we'd applaud the, the NHS workers, but it was hard for it. It was a difficult um, thing and very nearly didn't come to pass. And I, and I think it's a timely story now because um, we have politicians that want to take that away. They yeah. want to turn it into profit not for the country, but for any company based anywhere that may or may not pay tax to turn it into a vehicle for making money as opposed to a vehicle for providing health care for all. And therefore, it should it's not just memorializing the birth of it, but appreciating it and, and also appreciating some of those fights over health care provision are the same fights we're having now in different ways um so so it was a really uh, privilege to be one of the writers on that story um mm -hmm. the way that it worked was different writers worked on it in different stages okay. uh, so i came on board um at later stages um uh, and uh and then um had a brilliant script editor editor kenton hall who um took it through to the final mm. uh, the final stage so it wasn't like a writer's room and each of our, each of the writers that worked on it brought their own um, unique, brilliant flavors to it. So I think all of that is in is in the drama, um, which is a ten episode uh, uh, drama, which is on Audible and it's free yeah. if you've got an Audible subscription. And I strongly recommend to to go and hear it. I I found it very moving to work on it, and and I th I think one of the the joys of working on something like that is it forces you to understand a piece of your history that you know someone is paying you to yeah. to research and and to learn and and so i didn't know much about um that history I had glimpses mm. pockets of it but but kind of understanding it more was was a gift to me and i mm. and i hope that i did the people who i wrote about 
who obviously were some some were fictional uh, characters to help us tell a story. So there's a, a one um, strong strand of the story is about a, um, a female doctor in Manchester um, who works at the hospital, the first NHS hospital that's um, that's opened. So she so she's fictional, but is based on um, obviously yeah. real characters uh, uh, and her frontline work compared to the um the stuff in parliament mm. and uh nye bevan's work um uh you know there so the the two and then the two come yeah. together so many important events and you could do huge dramas you could do a 10 part series about one of those moments you mm. know but i do think it's a very accessible and sort of ripping yarn that takes you takes you into the history mm. it's not dry at all we were really resisting trying to make it a dry drama it's 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 uh it's about mm. um people living in extraordinary circumstances trying to make extraordinary things happen yeah 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 absolutely i think you're so right is it's such an important story to be told right now as well because of everything that's that's happening and you know the prospect of it being taken away or you know being privatized in in different sectors and split up and stuff and it's just heartbreaking um so to be you know that story being told it seems just more important than ever um at this current time um now you're also one of the facilitators on the rsc's 37 plays project um could you tell us a little bit more about what this is how one can get involved how uh, i know you're doing a course at the york theater royal in um next year is that right at the start of next year yeah yeah, yeah. so um oh i did i did want to shout out um ian hagan and barnaby and jones who produced getting better and who kindly got me involved they've just been yeah. nominated for audio producer of the year uh, oh fantastic yeah yeah as yeah. um for their work on that and and they're amazing and check out all their yeah. work there so yeah. i wanted to say that um yeah technically i'm not my contract i'm not working for the rsc royal shakespeare company i'm working for york theater royal mm. but their york theater royal are one of the partners with the royal shakespeare company who are um wanting to find 37 plays for the nation the people's plays mm. um so shakespeare after his death um his plays were collected into the first folio edition and actually they're not all his plays we, we know of others that have mm. disappeared like cardenio and, and so on um but uh we know we sort of everyone probably at some point has seen the complete works of shakespeare um even though they're not complete but uh, <laughs> but you know that which is kind of the folio plays and there's yeah. 37 of them um so they the rsc want to kind of celebrate um this by finding 37 new plays um and so any i think there's two categories category for young young people to submit and and, and anyone else um and the pay the plays can be as one page long or they can be a hundred page lo pages long mm. that's the that's the only criteria um and they will be um selected uh, by a team of readers who will uh will choose what would be the folio for 2023 and and what are those subjects and they don't have to be inspired by shakespeare or um uh in response to shakespeare's plays they can be about anything and set mm. anywhere about anyone um uh, and it'd be interesting to see, you know, what that says about, um, you know, yeah. our, you know, the UK in 2023, what are those concerns and, and issues? Yeah. So I'm, uh, my job is to teach playwriting um, to, uh, um, to local people in York. So they sign up and they um, do 10 weeks and then they'll submit something for, for 37, uh, 37 plays. Yeah. So yeah, to, yeah. teaching that, so it's a joy. So I look forward to finding out what those 37 plays are and what they look like. And um, if you just go to, I think 37plays.co.uk, I think is yeah. the one, um, uh, you can find out more there, but the brief is very loose. So if you're an experienced writer, send something, if you've never written, all you have to do is write a page, you know, and send that, you know, you can send it in and you'll get for some feedback. Um, I think the deadline is the end of January. For Fantastic. The submission. 
Yeah, fantastic. I have a. I must confess, I have a little bit of an invested interest um, in your ten uh, week course. I'm signed up on it. Um, so so in January. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Great. So yeah. So we're doing round two. So you'll be in round two. Yeah. Oh, fantastic! That'll be yeah. really yeah great. Yeah. <laughs> the the one that, the one that we're doing currently um, has a, again a re- a range of very different people people that have are prose writers that have never written plays before um uh actors um a a really experienced screenwriter um someone that's kind of going oh i thought i'd just give it a go yes we have this range but i think um one of the good things is that is that whilst we might not all identify as writers we do all love stories and we at some level to a greater or lesser degree of technicality, we we understand story. Um, yeah. And so, um, you know, I'm loving just hearing what people are coming out with and the, the, the stories that they're telling or want to tell, um, which are all very different. And, and that's a joy for me. Yeah, fantastic. Well, I, I'm, I cannot wait. I'm so looking forward to it and, and meeting more, uh, meeting new people. And yeah, it's, uh, it's gonna be great. I would love to chat with you um, about your writing process, if that's okay. Um, are you a person who benefits from like a strict routine? Um, are you writing every day or as, as these sort of ideas flourish? Could you tell us how you structure your work? Like once you get that initial idea? Yeah, I've been listening to the podcast and, I, and I'm, I'm deeply envious of uh, uh, some of your brilliant guests who um, <laughs> they have their own studio yeah, and then they have a huge pile of work, very demanding, and then they have their. Re- I was listening to the most recent one, and the you know the talk of the lip balm, and <laughs> and, <laughs> and, and uh, I, I was thinking, oh gosh, that sounds amazing. I mean, I'm sure, as was said, it's it's not yeah. always easy, but but I, that is the focus, yeah. and um, I, it's very difficult to make a living as a writer, uh, you know, and I've been. I think my first commission was in 1997, yeah. um, you know, and I, I've just submit, I've just finished the script. And for the first time in a long time, I have no commissions uh, yeah. ahead. And even when I do have commissions ahead, I have to make a living in other ways. Yeah. Um, uh, plus I have three children, three, three boys who are very demanding. My wife's doing a PhD. Um, so I'm juggling childcare yeah. uh, to support her and her work. Um, um, so I write where I can. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, and, and that's easier when someone's paying me money because it's easier to go, okay, well, this means I, I can literally pay for the time to do this. Yeah. Um, but sometimes the commissions come in when I'm already, at, you know, feels like I'm at capacity. Yeah. But yeah, I don't want to turn the work down. So you can do a certain amount of schedule wrangling and can say, yeah. look, I'm not going to be able to touch this until September. Yeah. Um, is that okay? But largely, I find it's um, managing life mm. and writing around it. So there's not, I, I can't remember whether it's Proust or, or someone who would write so many words per day. And when mm. they hit that word count um, or number, they would just stop. Uh, or Stephen King's got his ritual, hasn't he? Of um, I think he does a morning walk where he yeah. kind of um, cogitates, then he writes all morning, um, fresh new material, and then the afternoon is spent ad- doing admin, um, and then evening is rewrites or telly. You know, yeah. that's kind of he's and he's been doing that for years and years and years yeah. and years. Um, and I do want to shout out his book on writing, which I think is a brilliant book for writers and um, whether yeah. you like i'm not a particular horror fan i do like stephen king but um uh i think on writing is a really brilliant um craft manual for writers uh, yeah. uh so i recommend that but yeah i my life has no um easy rhythm to it um mm. so one minute i'm you know i was running a drama workshop for 50 year nines based around Animal Farm um, the other day. Nice. Yesterday I was teaching playwriting um, at one of the universities in York. Uh, this morning I'm talking to you and then I'm going to teach improv this afternoon um, uh, 
for a charity called Converge, uh, who um, run courses for people with lived experience of mental illness. So that's this afternoon. Tomorrow morning, I'm teaching uh, other university students at the other university um, uh, about ensemble and mm. creating ensemble. So um, yeah, the the writing can be, I could be doing it at two in the morning or I could be doing it at nine in the morning. But I, I do think with Stephen King, I would agree that there's two kinds of writing. One is sat at your desk, bum on seat, mm. typing, um, or writing in longhand on a notebook. Mm. And the other is you're in the shower and you're playing with ideas or you're going for a walk and you're playing with ideas. And I mm. think that second type of writing is what I do most of the mm. time. And actually it's where it's where the creativity comes in. It's where the problem solving comes in. And then the, the actual sitting down to, to write, right. Is, um, much more straightforward and it's much more, and you do make discoveries as you write. Um, even if you've outlined and this is the plot, I think you do make discoveries as you, as you write. But I think in terms of solving big problems like structure Mm. or which, which point of view does this story need to be told from happens more likely when you're out for a run or um, you're cooking spaghetti bolognese for the kids and suddenly you go, oh, that's what should happen. <laughs> you know, that's, that's more, uh, I think, how our brains work. Because yeah. when we're focused, when we're concentrated as we are in front of a computer, by definition, we have a narrow focus. Yeah. So we are we are concentrated on a particular thing and and that kind of wider creativity and um deeper insight left mm. field thinking happens absolutely yeah. away from the screen and i think as i more and more and particularly when i've say said had a lot of writing on i've had to force myself to instead of going oh i'm not spending an hour at the computer go mm. i'm gonna tidy a cupboard because that is going to help me write more by tidying the cupboard switch and then the answers will come and trusting that more and i know the cohen brothers often take naps when they're working on scripts and and i do think that kind of stuff like it sounds counterproductive but i do think in terms of creative work step away from what looks like work and into play or into something else and then your brain misbehaves and will deliver you um brilliant insights and answers yeah yeah absolutely i find it so fascinating the idea of like the writer's prism like looking through that prism of you know as a writer and then using that um when you know life gets challenging and there's obstacles thrown in your way in real life you kind of you can sort of see it as a story almost in your head um, like I was listening to David Sedaris talk about that and how, you know, when challenging things arose in his life, he was able to almost see it from a sort of out of body experience of the whole story. You know, with just it's his, his life is the narrative. And then he sort of uses that for, you know, uh, to impact positively his mental health um, and things like that. And I wondered if, if you had sort of if that resonated with you at all, like using you know, if, 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 you know, challenging things arise in your life, do you find a, a positive experience to, to put it out there on the page and sort of get it out that way? Yeah, I do think there's a catharsis there. Sometimes it's, you don't intend to, mm. and it, you know, I've had, I've written work, which is about two characters and I've just seen it as the two characters. And then someone who knows me well will say, well, that's that. Yeah. You know, and you go, oh yeah. my gosh, yeah, it yeah. is. Um, um, so I, I do think that's positive. I think there's a risk. There's a fine line between. I mean, a. I think writing is therapeutic, but it isn't therapy. And speaking mm-hmm. as someone that struggles with depression and that is in therapy, I really recommend therapy. Mm. <laughs> you know, like do write by all means, but don't yeah. make that your therapy. Um, yeah. it could be part of it could be therapeutic it can it can lift mood and it can it can do lots of things but don't confuse the two yeah for any art form um but i think everything you write you are putting a little piece of yourself into it 
and and i and i've seen things where like i i was very disturbed i went to a an improv festival recently um and there was a piece that was done and and it was a, br a brilliant improviser and they essentially improvised around their trauma okay um and it really moved them and it moved lots of the audience but i i was troubled by it because i don't think it seemed to be helping the performer and it didn't give the audience permission we had no idea that that's what we we're about to see and then mm -hmm. suddenly late at night we're confronted with this stuff and we i kind of thought i'm not sure it, to me, it, it, I think it came from a, a good place in the sense of mm. it, it came with honest and good intentions. But I think I'm not sure how helpful it was for, yeah. for the performer and f certainly for the two people I was with when we saw it. Mm. Um, so I think we have to be careful about... Uh, the, I love Twilight Zone. I'm re-watching all the old Twilight Zones. Um, uh, and um, there was a recent remake uh, not remake but a brilliant series by made by jordan peele in 2019 and 2021 mm -hmm. i think and there's a great episode i think it's the opening episode of the 2019 series called the comedian and in in the premise is um the comedian is doing his routines and people don't really care he's sort of got mm -hmm. he's sort of mid successful mm -hmm. um and then he starts mentioning bits of his life and suddenly the audience light up and he realizes the more of his life he puts into his act, the more successful he'll be. But what also happens because it's the twilight zone is anyone he mentions in his life then gets eradicated. Yeah. They get burnt out. So then he realizes he can remove unhelpful, toxic people from his life by putting, so he becomes a hate comedian and he starts, you know, doing yeah. that. But then in his desire for success, he realizes he's actually putting people that he loves in jeopardy. And, yeah. it, and it's a real brilliant parable about, how much of your self do you put into your art and and is your yeah. art more important than your mental health than, than your life or or, or yeah. is your art a vehicle to uh, address that um and there isn't one clear answer to that but I, but i do think it's wiser to not put your mental health um the stakes of your mental health into your art I think it can be a brilliant aid and a brilliant thing, um, but it is no placement for genuine help. And I'd encourage people to seek help where they need it. Um, yeah. That said, um, some of the best drama and um, things that have really spoken to me have come from a deeply personal place. And and ultimately, there's um, a brilliant uh, book on playwriting by Stephen Jeffries, which is called Playwriting. And he says this about drama. There's two big questions. What happens next and why do we care? Uh, and I think the why do we care, often we obsess and a lot of Hollywood screenwriting is about, okay, you have an inciting incident, you have a hook, you have a climax, you have, you know, this happens has to happen in act two. This is the structure. And, and that's great, but it's, it tends to be event based, right? This happens mm. and this happens and this happens. Um, the why do we care? the emotional journey of the mm. characters so um is more important mm. so i love when people are honest about their emotional experiences or they use their emotional experiences to tell um emotional stories uh that resonate mm. like recently the tv show which was a stage play originally a one woman show fleabag oh yeah um yeah, yeah it, the story you know, is about a woman who's trying to get enough money to run a cafe and have a love life and hopefully have some kind of better relationship with her friends and family. You know, that's on the surface, but that's not what it's about. It's about yeah. grief and yeah. it's about why she makes terrible life choices, which are very funny, yeah. obviously, in, in yeah. the show. Why she makes terrible life choices because she hasn't dealt with grief. And that that's the power of it. So it's very funny and it's brilliantly yeah. acted, but the emotional story, the why do we care underneath Fleabag is really profound. Yeah. Um, so I really, I really love and appreciate stories that um, have honest emotional content.
basically. Um, Even if what the trappings of that are, you know, kind of event, Mm. genre, you know, all of those, those kind of things. Um, So, yeah, that's my very garbled answer to, (laughs) I guess, Um, it can be cathartic, but don't make it your therapy. And, and focusing on the emotional journeys of your characters is more important than the events that cause those emotions or affect those emotions. You know, we, I guess Lord of the Rings, going back to that, that early thing, part of the power of that story really is Sam and Frodo and their friendship and how that is really jeopardized. And the the cost of that is, is actually more important than chucking a ring in a volcano. Yes. Yes, absolutely. I think, do you know, mentioning Fleabag, there was a part that um, really stuck with me and I'm not sure. I I just found it so profound. It was weird. It was about the, um, the talking about a story where someone does something very strange with a pencil and a guinea pig, (laughs) you know, that part. And um, they're talking about, and then um, they say, um, oh, that's why you put rubbers on pencils. Why to do this to a guinea pig? No, because people make mistakes. And that stuck with me so much. I just, you know, it's just, I just kept sort of finding deep, meaningful, beautiful messages from really funny and and, and strange stories and strange ways. Yeah, I thought that was so, so well done. Yeah, I mean, one of my things that I do is I teach comedy um mm. at universities and i love comedy i have a deep love of comedy and say so as part of the reason to train at second city and, and and all of that yeah but um there's a great quote by peter eustonoff who is my sorry david Suchet kind of runner <laughs> but i peter, i grew up with peter peter eustonoff was poirot yeah um even though he was in some really bad pyros where ways it's kind of set in the eighties and you're going, okay. Um, but he, he was a brilliant man, uh, you know, very smart, spoke multiple languages, you know, this kind of, um, brilliant genius figure. And he said, uh, and I'm going to paraphrase, but it's still good. He said, uh, being funny is just another way of being serious. Mm. Um, in, in other words that underneath the jokes, there is something serious happening yeah um, and and you know you can see that with say racist jokes where the serious thing under the so-called funny thing is i'm going to attack another yeah human being <clears throat> because of race mm. um or it could be like the flea bag thing where you go this is a way of us mm. collectively acknowledging that we all go from screw up to screw up you know, <laughs> in a in a kind of uh, fantastic way. So yeah. I, I I think you know, scratch a joke a little bit, and you'll discover the serious thing underneath. And I, you know, there's the drama faces. If you you know look at ancient Greeks, and there's those two drama faces. You know, one happy, one sad, tragedy or comedy. And if you Google images of those, they're often separate, right? One is yeah. in front of the other. But I like the images where they're actually melded mm. and actually, you know, we find comedy and tragedy and we find tragedy and comedy and they are the same thing. It's just they're coming from slightly different views, but underneath both of them, I think, um, even in the silliest of stuff, yeah. there is a serious heart. And I love that. And I really love comedy that, is explicit like Fleabag that that is explicitly teaching us something or affirming something that uh, underneath the jokes. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I think you're absolutely right. Um, I have one final question, if that's okay. Um, We hear so much about, it's not what you know, it's who you know. Um, for those who for those who may be looking for more experience in the theatre industry, specifically in the production of plays, like getting plays on the stage, um, meeting people who do that or meeting people who have done that or, or also want to, you know, like-minded individuals. Um, how can one go about connecting with these like-minded individuals? Have you got any advice on, on networking within, you know, the theatre community? <laughs> well, I'm terrible <laughs> at it. <laughs> I, I find it deeply uncomfortable. Like I yeah. really like people, but I, I get intimidated really easily. Um, I don't enjoy parties where I don't know people. Yeah. I find it all awkward. Um, 
um i i come from a a place that you know didn't really understand drama like my mm. my roots are not you know i was i amazingly i went to the school that i went to and had good drama teachers because yeah. i don't know where i would be if i hadn't encountered that but largely mm. the culture at large was not it it wasn't connected there weren't contacts it wasn't you know it's it's been hard honestly mm. to get anything made but what i'd encourage people to do is even if they're like me and they feel scared and awkward and is um do stuff afraid have to have to try and have the and i would say try and get a coffee in a conversation just try mm. that you know don't settle for sending a cv and a headshot in yeah. um don't settle for just sending an invite try and get a face-to-face -face. and that may or may not work but i think it's it's it is about making personal contact yeah um i think the plus side when i was coming out when i finished up to training there were a set of institutions like the national and the rsc hmm. the bbc um and there were gatekeepers as there still are to those places hmm. and you you know you would sort of have to either know someone you went to oxford with them and that would get you into this and it, to that and that that still is there but I think the great thing now is we're in a culture where you can make work and broadcast it easily. Hmm. So I would make the work that you want to make. Now in, in England, it's largely been, uh, you know, in UK rather, it's been about going up to Edinburgh and getting spotted at Edinburgh. And I don't think you can do that, but you can also, you know, you can make your own audio drama. You can make um, your YouTube show. You can go, and create a play you know on a low budget and then film it and send you know send it somewhere put it on a website um so i think that's the good thing now is actually um and i think commissioners have been more open to um looking out what's already out there and seeing what people are doing and and rather than auditioning people or um uh you sending in a script is is just seeing that work already in the world um mm. and work does tend to breed work yeah. um so my yeah my two bits of advice are get a face-to-face -face coffee and just make the stuff that you want to make and try and lever that uh, in terms of um uh, getting seen and 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 hopefully i mean kate i i met with kate who hired me for the innovating project because i had a show that i was doing that happened to be set in the georgian period the same period a little bit earlier and she she could come and see that show and then she knew that i could write regency dialogue mm. could you know could literally say so okay mm. half the work is done because he you know this person can write um you can write in this language in exactly the kind of the the era that I want, I don't need to worry about that. Yeah. Um, so having, and I made, and that was a show, it was called Voices of Reason. And I had been wanting to write and make that for three years. Nice. And I eventually got the means to make it and we made it on a shoestring. Um, but I got it out there and that got me innovating. And I'm yeah. hoping that innovating, um, you know, people go to the site and then maybe they'll drop me a line and say, Paul, could you write this? Yeah. Um, so yeah. So, so make, make the stuff that you want to make, get a face-to-face -face coffee and do it all as with me, terribly afraid. <laughs> no, I get it. I, I resonate with that so much. Um, I'm exactly the same, but yeah, some fantastic advice there. Thank you so much. Um, just before we finish off, is there anywhere, obviously I'll post the links um, to everything that we've mentioned uh, in the show notes and links to where people can listen to the audio dramas and things like that. But is there anywhere specifically that you'd like to direct people uh, to go check out? Yeah, I, I mean, do, do, do check out my website. That, that tells you a little bit about me and, um, there's some nice photos on there, but you can also listen to a, a, a couple of things. And um, yeah, that's kind of the hub for me, I suppose. Um, and, and you know, I'm on Twitter and Instagram, but I'm not sure, <laughs> again, 
this world, whether I need 8 billion followers or not, or whether that will help. <laughs> but I'm on there if you want to say hi. Um, that's kind of it, really. Um, yeah, yeah, do uh, do um, do go to Audible, though, if you're an Aud your Audible subscriber yeah. and have a listen to Getting Better. And also, I um, had great fun during the pandemic writing not an adaptation of Baron Munchausen, but a, a modern reworking of it, where what are the fantastic stories of our time now? Yeah. Um, and there's um, 12, uh, there's two series, six episodes, a half hour of comedy. Richard O'Brien is Baron Munchausen. Um, uh, and Sophie Aldred um, uh, is uh, the, com the sort of companion. Uh, the, yeah. So, um, and they do terrific work. And that's a vet, uh, getting better is, about a very serious thing and um baron munchausen is about joy so <laughs> those, are, those are the things um to check out i guess fantastic well that just about does it for this episode of the audiobook club all relevant links to social media accounts and the shows mentioned will be available in the show notes paul thank you so much for joining me on the show it's been such a pleasure to chat with you Oh, it's been joyous. Thank you very, very much. I've really enjoyed it. I was a bit nervous about this as well. And um, <laughs> put me at my ease. And, uh, you know, I've really enjoyed listening to the other episodes. And I really look forward to hearing um, uh, future guests. I'm learning loads from the podcast. So thanks for putting into the world. Oh, thank you very much. That's very kind. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Audiobook Club. This episode was sponsored by Pro Audio Voices. If you have a story you want to bring to life, head over to ProAudioVoices.com to get in touch with industry professionals that can take care of every step of production, as well as offer support and guidance with marketing, growing your brand, and boosting your sales. Once again, that's ProAudioVoices.com. Thanks for listening.